Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. I am your host, Mark R. LePage. Today, I have a very special bonus episode for you. In this episode, I've teamed up with my friends, Evelyn Lee and Janine Chastain, co-hosts of Practice Disrupted. Practice Disrupted is the podcast of Practice of Architecture, the platform at practiceofarchitecture.com. This is a replay of a very important conversation that they had about NCARB and the future of practice. In this episode, Evelyn and Janine sit down with Patricia Romalo and Jared Zern of the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, that's NCARB, to learn how NCARB is responding to wide-reaching industry change. You've been feeling it. I've been feeling it. The industry is changing. The profession is changing. It's transforming. They will discuss in this episode NCARB's role in advancing equity in architecture, including the baseline of belonging report, which is an NCARB report, as well as the adoption of new policies intended to strengthen the pipeline of diverse talent in the profession. They also discuss NCARB's innovation team and the recent analysis of practice study, which you've heard talked about and advertised on this podcast, the analysis of practice survey. Well, the, the results are out. So they talked about it in this episode. You learn how uh, research studies like NCARB by the numbers yield new insights into our industry, into the profession of architecture, and how you can continue to share your ideas with NCARB to champion industry transformation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn how NCARB is addressing industry change and transformation. Here's the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. 
Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Practice Disrupted. Today, we're sitting down with the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards to discuss how INCARB is working to advance the profession, particularly around the issue of diversity. I want to start this episode by acknowledging that all of us probably have feelings about NCARB especially if you're a licensure candidate in the middle of completing your AXPs and ARES. But I'm really looking forward to this conversation because NCARB has committed to doing what it can do to make the licensure path more equitable. And when we talk about creating greater EDI within our firms, it really depends upon having a diverse pool of individuals within the pipeline to pull from. Increasing diversity within the profession is not something that a single organization can accomplish on its own. So it's really important to understand all of the governing organizations that play a critical role in shaping our profession. In particular, INCARB's role in advancing licensure candidates and working with state registration boards. Joining us today are Patricia Romalo, who is a part of NCARB's experience and education team, and Jared Zern, who is vice president of examination. Together, they're going to help us understand what is happening behind the scenes at NCARB. So welcome, Patricia and Jared. We are so happy to have you here today. And we wanted to start by asking both of you to introduce yourself in your own words. And Patricia, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your role at INCARB. Hi, thank you so much for having both of us here. A little bit about myself. I joined INCARB seven years ago. As you can probably tell by my accent, I'm originally from Argentina. That's where I studied architecture. I'm an architect there. And then I moved to the U.S. and became an architect. Practiced for about 15 years before joining INCARP, and my life changed. Uh, initially, it was part of the experience and education team. And a couple of years ago, I joined a new team. It's the innovation team because INCARP is looking to foster a culture of exploration, shared learning, and data-informed decisions. And we are going to cover many of those topics today. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm very interested to know what innovation means to NCARB. And Jared, please tell us about your role as vice president. Well, as Evelyn said, I am the vice president of examination. So yes, I do work on the architect registration exam every single day. I've actually worked for NCARB now for 14 years on the examination. So I started when ARE 4.0 launched uh, all the way through 4.0. It's shut down the launch of 5.0. And here we are today talking about what's going to be next in the licensure process. My background, and you maybe can tell from my accent, I'm from Minnesota. uh, So I have some long O's every now and then. I was a practicing architect up until 14 years ago when I left the profession to come work at NCARB and really work on assessment. Yeah, that's interesting. I am curious to know, like, how being an architect and working at NCARB, has that changed your perspective about where your point of view is in the industry by being able to be a little bit behind the scenes of what's going on? I would say yes. There's not a lot of architects that work at NCARB. Of our 120-some employees, there's about 12 of us. But we bring that unique perspective of having been in practice, understanding all of the dynamics, 
and even like walking in the steps of what licensure candidates are walking through. So I remember when I was documenting experience and I remember when I was studying to take the ARE at the time. And those stories help others inside the organization understand what candidates are going through. Absolutely. Before we assume that everyone who is listening really knows what NCARB is, and I know we gave a brief introduction in the intro about it, I would love to hear from both Patricia and Jared. How would you each describe NCARB? I would describe NCARB as a nonprofit organization. It's important to know that about us as an organization, that we are a nonprofit. We're not out there trying to generate revenue. The the revenue we generate in some programs actually goes to support other programs, and it allows us to balance out the costs that our customers, licensure candidates, have to pay for services. We are a membership organization, and our members are the 55 U.S. licensing jurisdictions. Um, we're pretty good at saying it's, it's the 50 states, Guam, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the District of Columbia, and the Northern Mariana Islands. They're the ones that set policy and regulation at the jurisdictional level. We are here to help them standardize their process and procedures and make the overall reciprocal licensure process better for everybody. And I think that's a really important point that a lot of people get confused is that the states operate individually on their own. Therefore, INCARB cannot tell the states what to do holistically. The states still basically decide what the local governance is for their location. And so sometimes I see people confuse the idea that NCARB can interject an idea over all of those jurisdictions, where that's not truly the case. Yes, we can advocate, but much like the building codes that we are familiar with as architects, the ICC develops the codes, but then it's up to the jurisdiction it, that could be state or in the case of the building codes, even the city, they adopt the parts that they feel it serves them the most, and they may even change it a little bit. INCAR tries to find that common thread and try, trying to facilitate licensure while protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Yeah, and I, and I want to hear also, Patricia, if you have any other thoughts about your perspective on INCARB and how you might describe it beyond what was just said. Well, Jaya did a great job covering the, the basics. And some of the things I didn't know when I was in practice was INCARB is a nonprofit organization. We manage the programs that you, people have to go through to become an architect, but we don't really assign the license uh, like I would have thought in the past. And uh, the reciprocity aspect, it's another thing that compared to other professions, we are lucky as architects to have an organization that facilitates that transition. Because one of the things I mentioned, when, especially when I'm talking to students, it's the in the US, we have this very unique setup in which each state has their own license. And if you have a project in another state, you will need a license in the other state regardless of where you're sitting. So th that is the one of the bigger reasons why INCARB exists. So I think a big part, obviously, of NCARB's operations is improving the licensure candidate experience overall. That goes back to opening the pipeline for equity or for greater equity and diversity and inclusion within the profession. So what are you hearing from licensure candidates and license holders right now? Where do they seem to be struggling with the most and needing more support? 
Jared, I'll start with the good news and you can take the, the rest. I have been, uh, well, recently, and as part of the outreach team, uh, I, I have been lucky to be in, in contact with licensure candidates and architects residing inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. And two things that I have noticed. First, especially after 2020 and in the recent years, mobility across jurisdictions and mobility across countries is something that is coming up a lot. And people are reaching out asking, how can we help? So that is an area in which INCARP is actively working in, in. We already have reciprocity within the U.S. We are working in pursuing uh, mutual recognition agreements with other countries. One that is coming up with the U.K. is an example. So that is an area where we are trying to contribute based on the needs that are coming up. And another area it's um, that I'm noticing a lot of interest in getting licensed. It's great to hear uh, few years ago, I would hear more like, why should I get licensed? And now the conversation has switched to, even if I don't plan to practice traditional architecture, to go into the non-traditional students, licensure candidates are voicing that they value licensure for those paths as well. So that is the change. And I'm very connected with the immigrant community and some minority groups. Uh, that is the passion of mine. And they also are very strong in wanting to advance in the profession and their careers. So INCARB is collecting a lot of data and we're seeing that, for instance, 50% of the new architects in 2021 are women. 60% of the new licensure candidates that are embarking in the process are identifying as a person of color. For the first time in INCARB history, we have 500 black or African-American candidates starting the path to licensure. So there is a strength, there is a will, and now it's INCARP's turn to figure out how we can best make the licensure path accessible to everyone. Okay, Jared, I want to hear it. What's the bad news? <laughs> yeah, Patricia sent me up for the bad news. Uh, the bad news is, is that there are, I would say there are three main factors that we hear repeatedly from licensure candidates, and it is cost, just the overall amount of money it takes to become licensed when you consider an education that is likely at a minimum five years, if not up to seven years long. It is time. By the time you go to school for five to seven years, layer on a couple years of experience. And then if you take a couple years to get through your exams, you're looking at a 12 or 13 year timeline for some people. And then the other challenge that we are really discussing at NCARB is also relevance. A lot of people are looking at the architect license of today, which is the generalist, I can do everything license and say, well, that's not who I am. And that's not how I practice. I do this one thing or these two things every day and I'm really good at them. I want to be an architect, but the license says I have to be able to do all of this stuff. And I think those three challenges are not faced by everybody but they can certainly compound and some people do face all three of them. Absolutely. I mean, I've I've definitely heard all three in the context of my peers in the industry and they're all at different stages. And so Evelyn's a licensed architect. I'm someone who should be a licensed architect, but I haven't finished my exams yet, but I've finished my experience. And the process was really hard because of a lot of external factors that had nothing to do with the Aries or my examination process or the experience process. It was the recession and like 
having a career where I could get the experience. So different things happen that changed the trajectory of that for me. And so I know I'm not alone in that. And I know that there's been a lot of criticism towards NCARB, in, especially in recent years. But I think the heart of today's conversation is really to talk about three research reports that you all have been working on to help advance some of these complex conversations where there is an opportunity for NCARB to help move those challenges forward in a positive way. And so those reports are the baseline on belonging, NCARB by numbers, and the analysis of practice. So why don't we jump first into our conversation with the NCARB by numbers, since that is the longest standing report that you guys have been working on. Tell us what that report is. So NCARB by the numbers is something NCARB has been doing now for over a decade. It started, I believe, 11 years ago. And every calendar year, we know we collect a lot of data. We have a lot of data. And so what we do is we basically isolate one year's worth of data every January. And then we do research into what is that data telling us. And year one, when we did it 11 years ago, it was a couple year look back and like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But what's been great about it is now over the course, you can look back truly 10 years of in-depth research on what are the trends. We're really seeing real trends now before it was always, well, maybe this is going to happen or maybe that's going to change. But now we can see things like time to licensure, which became a factor that people started talking about, has actually been decreasing over the last few years when you look at NCARB by the numbers. Uh, when you look at things like cost to licensure, NCARB is actually doing our part to sort of hold costs stable as much as possible. But we have to acknowledge that like education costs have gone up dramatically over the past 10 years. So that's what NCARB by the numbers is really about is everything we can study at NCARB with the data that we have. So we're looking at path to licensure, specifically about AXP, specifically about ARE. We also dig into our certification, our cert holders, the people who are licensed architects that are going for reciprocal licensure. So it's a broad overview of everything taking place in any one calendar year. NCARB is trying to get more information. So we know uh, there is something happening. And with NCARB by the numbers, we have been able to pinpoint certain areas that we need to uh, research more. So from this data collection every year, we have started to pull some threads and to understand what is happening so we can move towards improving our programs in a successful way to help the most amount of people. So for instance, in 2018, we noticed in NCARB by the numbers, we started looking reporting data related to attrition. And at the time there was noticeable disparity in a minority architects that were more likely to fall from the licensure path. So we had a 25 to 30% more likely. And this was something that we really needed to understand why, because just knowing that it's happening doesn't help. So the next step was understanding why. And that is one of the reasons why we moved, well, we also started working on a baseline on belonging. And I think in this report, this is where you're generating historical data in reference to demographics in the profession. Um, so there's a lot of speculative conversations that are out there of how much of the percentage of the industry is of a certain demographic. And in this report, you can actually point to real data that you've taken on the number of certified 
NCARB license holders, and you can look at specific demographics broken down. Um, so a couple that stood out to us when we were prepping for this conversation is that uh, approximately 83% of NCARB certificate holders identified as white in 2021. White men made up just under two-thirds or 64% of NCARB certificate holders in 2021. And white women were the next most represented group at 19%. And other demographics, including Black or African-American women, continue to be the least represented demographic group in the architecture population at under 5%. And it has only increased by about one percentage point since 2017, which is definitely something we've covered in other episodes. So I think that that is a really important place that people can go to find information that is accurate and represents a holistic look at the industry in the U.S. Yes, and the 2022 edition, which is the 11th edition, it has enhanced demographic reporting. So we wanted to learn even more. So this year, uh, we dig deeper into the gender, racial, ethnic diversity in the profession. And again, this is, uh, we iterate and every year we try to push a little bit more and get more data. So that actually leads us into the baseline for belonging, which was in partnership with NOMA, correct? Correct. This was a significantly important joint initiative, and we can't give NOMA enough credit for all of their efforts in this project with NCARB. Can you tell us about what some of the big takeaways were in that report? As you had mentioned, the baseline on belonging report really grew out of NCARB by the numbers because we saw enough disparity in NCARB by the numbers. But we wanted to know the why, right? Because like you said, it's one thing to call out a problem, but then to understand what's really the root cause of the problem. And so in a very architect way that, that NCARB thinks is we looked at what's going on from an experience perspective, what's going on from an examination perspective, what are we finding out about firm culture? So we kind of broke it down based on our programs to see how things are playing out. And so I'll start by sharing a little bit was, I mean, we really did want to dig into the examination side of the house. And it was like, of course, I'm going to like, yeah, tell me everything I can learn about examination as that's my world at NCARB. But the why behind some of the disparities that we're seeing in pass rates, in candidates signing up to take the ARE, and the baseline and belonging really exposed some things for us that have caused NCARB to make some changes. Probably the most shocking, and I will truly use the word shocking, discovery was how much money candidates are spending on study materials to prepare for the ARE. And it has caused us to really reevaluate not only what's going on in the test prep industry that's making this happen, but what are we communicating to candidates that might be making them think they need to go get test prep? Like, how can we help them? And so immediately when we saw early data coming back on this, our board of directors started talking about this specific data point going, we gotta do something. And admittedly, they came back to us as staff and said, we need to start rolling out more resources directly for candidates to help them prepare. And we kind of did that. Okay, let's figure out how to do that. And over the course of two years, we put time and money and a lot of volunteer effort into building full-size practice exams for every single division. Again, doesn't cost a candidate anything. They can take it as many times as they want. And the great news is this launched back in June and we're already seeing an impact. Pass rates are going up for candidates that are using the practice exam. 
pass rates are staying the same for candidates who are not using the practice exam. So I cannot stress enough how important it is for everybody who's going to take an ARE exam to use the practice exam. The only thing you have to invest is your time and it is well worth it. Yeah, no, that that is so significant because I do think there's like been this whole industry that's emerged around trying to sell candidates on resource materials. And then as someone who has gone through that process, I can say for sure that there's like I've got a library in my secret stash of files that I've been collecting of like different study materials. And so, yeah, one of the data points from the survey was that only 26% of test takers indicated that they felt confident that they could afford the ARE. And so I want to talk a little bit more about this next layer of financial burden, which is about firms helping to cover the cost of the examination, because that was also something that came out of the information. So tell me more about where you see an opportunity either for NCARP to take a stance on a policy change, or maybe is it the firm's responsibility to take a stance on supporting the financial responsibilities of ARES? I will share that I know conversations are happening inside of NCARB where it's both people's responsibility. NCARB is not going to sit here and say, well, it's on everybody else. You know, we don't need to worry about that. And at the same time, NCARB knows we can't, as you, I think, had said in the introduction, no one organization can fix everything. It really is a multifaceted effort. NCARB is continuing to have conversations about, can we figure out new ways of supporting candidates from a preparing for the ARE perspective? What would that be? Practice exams are great. Is there something else we could do? Or do we need more practice exams? Is that like the go-to? It really works. So you're going to probably see us studying this issue a little bit more in the next year or so of, great, you've used the practice exam. Now what, right? What else could help you as a licensure candidate? At the same time, from a financial perspective, NCARB continues to think through and study various ways to either just maintain cost of the ARE, potentially lower cost. We actually did lower and re- we eliminated some fees when we migrated to PSI over the um, this summer. Candidates used to pay anywhere from 40 to $55 to reschedule. And that was money that came out of the candidate's pocket and went right to the test vendor. And the reality is now we negotiated a different contract with PSI, we don't have to have candidates pay reschedule fees anymore. And that's a cost savings. And admittedly, I will tell you, candidates are using it. Like our candidates reschedule a lot in architecture. If they do it within the time frame, they're not paying anything to do that. And so that that in itself, even though it seems like a little thing, could save a candidate easily a few hundred dollars over the course of taking six divisions of the ARE. Yeah, I'm totally guilty of missing my reschedule window and then losing my sunk cost on my exam fee, but that's okay. That's another topic. <laughs> um, and so another data point from the report talked about African-Americans and Latino candidates are more likely to report that college and personal debt and family obligations negatively impact their ability where they cannot really afford the exam. So for example, African-Americans were 14% points more likely to report personal debt as a factor impacting their ability to afford the ARE than white candidates. Yes, our reports are noticing differences from if we look at AXP, uh, how firms are assigning certain tasks to uh, differently based on uh, certain things. Uh, 
to the support to the exams. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the African-American and Latino candidates that are less likely to report their firms contributing. And then school debt. So I, th I think this is a partnership. So part of it will be in CARP uh, with our, the other organizations that, of course, we're joining forces to improve. At the same time, I would encourage firms to do an introspection and think about how they can support to start with, of course, equitably everyone, but also how can they help and uh, schools. Another call to uh, one of the things that INCARP is trying to do is collaborating more with community colleges to see if there is a way to uh, shape education in a way that is a little bit less costly and still a path to licensure. So uh, it's in all of us. To me, one of the biggest issues has always been that it always felt like an extracurricular part of the process. Like you go to work and you're going to work your butt off all week. And then now you need to go home and you need to study. And it's this additional thing that you need to do on top of what you're doing just to like live in society. <laughs> you got to go home and do the additional work to study for this area and pass it. And I think it just puts an incredible strain on people, both financially and uh, emotionally, you know, to the point where I've even seen people, they, they go through that really rigorous process of taking all their exams and they can't even celebrate it then because it's like, it's just been so much to get to that point. They just want to move on. And so I think trying to rethink, this is very important to me, trying to rethink the way that we shift that narrative to create better pathways for people to achieve that milestone, which is such an important one for people's careers. And that is exactly uh, some of the work we are uh, doing. And one of the reasons why we have an innovation team, we are trying to to challenge ourselves, to look at things from a different point of view and from every point of view, to ask the hard questions, to challenge our own traditions. So we are asking questions like, should we have three E's? What is the rest of the world doing? Should we be figuring out more, not even alternative, but more ways to get a license that are the standard path, that will have a smaller burden on debt, or maybe you have a person who does not go to school. How can that person with a lot of experience can get a license or they learn better in a different way? So we all have different abilities and different ways to learn. So I will say this is an area where, like your podcast, which is Practice Disrupted, this is where NCARB is really looking at disrupting the licensure process. We are actively working on this right now to reinvent not only what is expected of somebody who earns that license, but also what are, as Patricia said, the multiple ways somebody can go about earning that license. Two decades ago, NCARB was sort of on a path of trying to get everybody to do everything the same way. And it included going and getting your NAB degree, coming out, completing your IDP at the time, getting done with IDP, and then starting your ARE and completing your, and it was a very rigid process. For those of us that have been around NCARB have seen the changes. NCARB has gotten a lot more flexible, right? There's overlapping experience and examination in a way there's never been before. We've launched the Integrated Path to Architectural Licensure program option where students are learning about architecture, they're working in firms, and they have the opportunity to take the ARE all at the same time. 
So we want to continue to push the boundaries on how can you become an architect, but at the same time, ensuring that when you become an architect, you are still truly competent to hold that license. And the other thing I will share is you're going to hear NCARB say a lot that we're not parental. We're not an organization that is going to be your mom or dad telling you how to do it or when to do it or clean your room. If you don't want to clean your room, don't clean your room. If you don't want to take the test, don't take the test. But if you want to figure out a way to get licensed, we're here to help you do that. Um, and we're going to give you options. As long as we understand what is the competency that is needed to practice architecture and keep the health, safety and welfare of the public, how you get there and how you maintain that, there is a lot of room for discussion there. I would say, I know this is a generalist statement, but Jared, especially just in your role as VP of exam examination, I think it's important for our listeners to hear that because I would say when I first, you know, heard the IPAL getting in introduced, there was a lot of people saying like, you can't send people through this, what they feel was like a limited time frame, and to have them come out the other end, just as competent as us who went through the trenches. Meanwhile, I do think the younger ones who are in the trenches and the ones who are like, you know, battling, like, how do I even begin approaching licensure are going to be very excited about the different ways that NCARB is looking to redefine that path. And I agree, Evelyn. I think we honestly all need to buckle up for a lot of, well, that's not the way it was done when I got licensed stories. They're coming and <laughs> I'm ready to hear them. <laughs> but the reality is I'm also ready to push back and say, that's what you did. It doesn't mean that's what people need to do today. Yeah. I mean, it was IDP when I went through and I had nine tests, 10 if you count California. So it's already like back in my day, I had to take so many more tests than everyone else. Yeah. Well, you know, as the millennial on the call, I'll just say that I had to sit at a computer for over 40 hours a week staring at Revit. So like, if you didn't do that, then your experience is probably different than mine of trying to practice architecture and learn how to detail a building and learn a computer software program at the same time. <laughs> But I want to pivot because I think the third really major point of this conversation is around this analysis of practice report, which we are super excited about and we cannot wait till you guys issue the results. So from what I know, there were 19,000 participants that were involved in this survey, which was to your point, Jared, about really thinking about how do we redefine practice? And I'm super interested to know what you can tell us. Can you give us a teaser about like what we're going to find out in this report? I can give you some teasers. The full report is really planning on being released in early 2023. We have all of the data inside of NCARB right now, and there are some program committees that are already chewing on what this data means. But some of the big highlights that you're going to hear coming out of this is the value of licensure still exists. And a lot of people have questioned that. And they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe licensure needs to go away or the next generation doesn't care about licensure. But the reality is when you look at people who have just recently earned their license, they still say, no, there's absolute value in earning my license. And they personally saw a benefit in earning it very quickly after they earned that license. So value of licensure is not going away. I think that's important for people to know. I will say, though, the specializations that are starting to happen inside of this profession that are not about being licensed, but just are about being a specialist in a certain area with a certain skill set. 
those are becoming more and more important than they ever have in the profession. Um, so some of our data is really showing how people who aren't licensed and are choosing to not pursue licensure are still in the profession, but they're choosing to become specialists in very nuanced areas. And I think that's a fascinating conversation for the practice of architecture, because what does that mean when, okay, Evelyn holds a license, that's great, but you're really working with six other people who are way smarter than you in a lot of different areas, and none of them are licensed, and you're very happy to have them on your team, right? And so this is like a new dynamic in the profession for us. Yeah, and I'm personally excited about this because Evelyn and I will be the first to say that in our expertise in this industry, it is very different than what the core competencies of a traditional architect would be. We're not the technical minded architects. We're the uh, and I'm not an architect, I should specify or explicitly say I'm not an architect yet. But in my focus and where I've really grown my knowledge base, it's in practice management. And so when I took the Aries, I crushed that exam. But when I look at the other exams, I'm going, uh, you know, I really don't know that I want to study mechanical systems for, you know, several months on end just to pass this exam. And what was always hard was feeling judged against the standard of, well, we need you to do production as an architect. So in order to qualify or even to work in this firm, your role is X and not having people recognize the strength of the specialization and the strength of where my actual abilities existed. It was outside of what was considered the core competency of what it meant to be an architect. Well, I'll pick up on that point about the technical side of architecture. So sharing some nerdy data points coming out of the analysis of practice. One of the things I found very fascinating was I will admit when I went to architecture school and when I came out of school, I was taught how to put a building together like that. We had multiple detailing classes in college. That's what it was all about. My first architect boss had done construction for 20 years and just hammered me on everything about, you know, wind, water, thermal protection. We get this analysis of practice data, the report sitting in front of me right now. And there's a data point that firms have told us that when they look to hire a new architect, what they would consider a junior level architect, as far as building material evaluation and selection and constructability, firms are saying that's less than 30% important. So 70, more than 70% of firms are saying, yeah, I don't care about that when I'm hiring somebody who's a junior architect. So Janine, just like you're saying is the profession is shifting away from everybody's got to know this to, no, they don't. Certain people know it in the firm and they leverage that skill set. And that's the fascinating part to NCARB is like, how do we address this now in a licensure process? Yeah. And I'll add to that, that when I talk to my architects, when we talk about mentorship and training the next generation of talent, they frequently tell me they do not expect new hires or the junior staff to know everything, that they expect that they're going to have to train them and work with them on that. So that it is definitely a part of the idea of how you practice that people are going to develop those skills over time through mentorship and training inside the firm. I almost feel like that will begin to smooth out the conversation, that push and pull between education and practice. And when I talk about my transferable skills and the skills that I use as an architect in the tech industry, 
for me, I really lean into the problem solving and design and understanding and things in three-dimensional space, which was core to my education as, as an undergrad. And, and that's where most of my transferable skills come from. My transferable skills don't come from, I know how to put together CD documents, right? That's not going to translate as well to other professions. I'm interested, Jared, in kind of the timing of the survey and when it went out based on the great resignation period where it was maybe more of an employee playing field. So that means that people were actually seeing bonuses for getting their licensure or they were using getting their licensure to leverage to a greater extent and move to a new firm. So I'm wondering as the economy begins to shift and that doesn't come into play, you know, how do people reevaluate the value of the license at that point? I would say, Evelyn, that is a fascinating conversation to start to have about the value of licensure, right? What does it really mean? Another little data point I will share coming out of even the, this analysis of practice data was that when we, we specifically asked this question, like, what is the value of licensure to you as an individual? And the majority of people did not come back and say, oh, so then I can start an architecture firm. It wasn't like I want to run an architecture business. The top two reasons why people said they went and actually achieved licensure was because they had a personal goal to do it. They just wanted to achieve that for themselves. And the other reason was because they wanted to officially hold the title of architect, not whether they were going to practice at all. It was really about it's a title and it is it's a personal goal. And it is probably something that many of us, as we know, right, we sometime in our past, we all said, hey, I want to be an architect. And you signed up to go to school for it and you ended up working in firms for it. And there's that thing in the back of your brain that's like, I, I still want to get that title. And so it's interesting, too, because that's the disconnect sometimes I think that we run into in the licensure process is that we're trying to license people to go run a firm. In all honesty, like I'll be very honest about like we have a practice management division. We have a project management division. It's about going to run a firm. But yet that's just not what a lot of people are looking for in licensure anymore. And swinging back to your first part of your question about, well, does the value of licensure change over time? I think it can based on the economy. I also was in practice right also back in the lovely 2008, 9, 10, 11 time frame. And that's also when the, the last big downturn happened. And at first, licensure becomes very valuable again because it's like, oh, we're downsizing, but can we keep licensed people on staff because that may lead to more work opportunities. So there's always an ebb and flow in the profession. And like I said, right now with people being so busy Getting a license can mean a lot in some firms, but other firms probably, I would say right now, don't care. They just want you to show up and work 40 plus hours a week. That's true. That's definitely true. So I think this would be a good place to pivot and turn further into what Patricia's doing on the innovation side. I think there are several things that you guys are specifically innovating around within the way that you guys are delivering your services to increase the pipeline. So we talked about the practice exams and making that free. I want to talk more about some of these other topics you mentioned, which include access to testing, ESL accommodations, and the role of making mistakes and testing ideas throughout this process. Can we dive a little bit further into those? Yes. I'll start with my personal favorite. As the person who speaks English uh, as a second language, 
I was extremely happy to learn that uh, Jared's team did an amazing job moving forward ESL, uh, English as a second language, uh, and accommodations for English as a second language. Whenever I meet somebody that is in this situation, I just mention it randomly because uh, I feel like it's good to know. You may not need it, but uh, you may need it. And it takes an extra second to translate things in your mind, uh, even if you have been here for 20 plus years. So it is something that exists. It is something that helps a community that may have just arrived or was here for the last 50, 20, 50 years and they just need it. So that is a, one of the many ways that we are really looking to uh, increase the access to uh, the exams and to licensure uh, overall. We are tackling this challenge from every point uh, that we can, and we are learning. So the focus is from the learning, understanding the why, and then talking about mistakes and just simply acknowledging that we may not get it perfect the first time and we'll try and try again until we keep going because this is a concept difficult for architects that uh, perfection is the enemy of good and we we need to move forward uh, and help the most so we are testing trying new things and another thing i wanted to bring up it's the outreach program that we have so there we have been also uh, working and trying new things from outreach in Spanish. We haven't had that in a long time, and well, ever. And now we, it's something we're trying. Or connecting with school counselors to help K through 12 in different languages. We have brochures in different languages. Community colleges, we were mentioning at the beginning and working with community colleges and seeing what other ways to achieve that competencies we have. So it's understanding the problem. It's a basic cycle of understanding trying something and evaluating how it went and trying again. I was having a conversation about innovation. And the thing is, to move forward and to be innovative means that you have to be okay with failure. So it's very easy to get excited that NCARB is trying all these things. But then we also have to acknowledge that in trying all these things, they're not going to get it right the first time. So allow for the, the patience for innovation to happen. Oh, and that is a concept that is so difficult. I, and I believe that maybe because of the training <laughs> that we have, but uh, it is difficult. It has been a conversation inside Incarb. We, we need to be okay if something doesn't go as planned and we will need to adjust and keep going. The world doesn't end. And I think from, from the outside that it's also, uh, it needs to be understood. We need patience. And I would imagine that, you know, we've we've only talked about a few of the things, but I would imagine that there are a lot more conversations that you guys are exploring um, because I'm sure there are so many pressure points where people are saying, uh, like, for example, uh, mothers who are going into testing situations. I know that that's been a point of discussion with being able to step out for breastfeeding that I've heard that one several times. So that's one need in the industry. Um, there are so many others. And I, so I'm just imagining that you guys are exploring all of those different avenues. What do you believe is realistic in terms of how aggressively are changes going to be adopted? So I use a term when I'm talking to people about 
And I will say, because there's a lot of people that I believe think about the world and they are aggressively judicious, which means they take so much time slicing and dicing the data and making sure everything is perfect before they roll it out. And I actually challenge people to flip that over and say, can we be judiciously aggressive? So how can we keep pushing ourselves? And NCARB is not going to just sit back and wait with this analysis of practice data and analyze it for eight years and then drop a whole new licensure process on people. We could. I think that is a, that would be an approach. Boy, if we get it wrong, it's going to be really bad, right? Instead, what you're going to see is you're going to continue to see, I think, policy changes and practice changes inside of our existing program. So modifications to the ARE, modifications to the AXP, I guarantee you there's going to be changes to the ARE from different aspects of item types. Like we're talking about this stuff right now based on the data we have. And so there's going to continue to be changes throughout, but someday there is going to be an ARE 6.0. Like it's going to happen, right? ARE 5.0 is not going to live forever. Uh, right now, I'm being very honest and I tell people, I think we're about five years away. I think five years from now, there's going to be an ARE 6.0 and it may look nothing like ARE 5.0. At that time though, it doesn't mean I'm going to not do anything for five years, right? For the next five years, ARE 5.0 is going to continue to evolve a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. I do want to emphasize what Jared said about small changes. It's not like we're changing everything every day and seeing what happens. So I don't want anyone to panic. It's just we are trying new things by taking smaller bites and seeing how, how it goes and what else we can do. So obviously we've introduced and we've talked about three really data-rich reports that NCARB uses to make decisions and to just gain greater insight about the profession and where people are and where the roadblocks are and how can we move the needle forward. So what can individuals do to contribute to that effort? Well, I will start with some of the smaller quick ways, which first off, when NCARB asks you a question, we really do care about your answer. Uh, when we send you a survey, and I will say for every candidate who takes any division of the ARE, we send you a follow-up survey to your email on file within two days. Hey, you just took practice management. Tell us how your experience went. We look at those answers. Like, we really look at those answers. And not only do we look at your answers, we take your data we compile it with others and we share it with our vendors. So PSI gets a report from us telling them how our candidates think they did, right? So something as quick as five minutes to fill out a survey matters to us at NCARB. From a bigger perspective, people volunteer to work on our committees. We've mentioned that we have these different task forces and committees that are re-envisioning like what's the licensure process gonna be. That's a bunch of volunteers. I'm actually gonna spend the next couple of days meeting hundreds of volunteers, architects all across this country that are going to be talking about all the different things happening inside the profession and all the different ways NCARB could go. And so volunteer for NCARB, and whether it's just being part of a small focus group, which is a quick one or two hour connection, to committing more time, to working on a committee where you maybe meet three or four times a year, all the way up to, I would say, the volunteers I love the most are the volunteers who actually take time to write exam items. We have over 100 volunteers that they work on editing and authoring new exam items. They put in countless numbers of hours. They volunteer their time and they allow this exam to exist. And so there's all kinds of levels of volunteer engagement. And I know Patricia has more to talk about. 
Yes, regarding committees, we have a depending on your area of expertise or what type of interest you have from the think tanks, think tanks, rethink tank for the for individuals who are recently licensed as well. For instance, I am going to be uh, joining Jared in this uh, big conference that we have with committees. Uh, one of my favorites is the Futures Collaborative. This is a committee that is charged with uh, figuring out what is happening in the profession in uh, the regulation of architecture in the next 50 years. So not today. Today we have committees taking care of that. What is happening in the future? To, of course, item writing, think tanks really give us information and feedback of what's out there, what's happening, and where we should be focusing our efforts. So collaboration and volunteering, it's a huge way to get things moving. And another way, if you're interested in helping those around you that are seeking licensure, there is a program that INCARP supports, it is the Architect Licensing Advisor Community. It's a group of volunteers that want to help others with information and with mentorship. So INCARP provides information, resources, access to INCARP staff, and even we have a conference. So these individuals are well-trained to support others. So if you're in a firm and you, you want to help, you could be the architect licensing advisor for your firm or your school, you're a student, you can help those around you as well. So different types of engagements, they all help in different ways. Is there a resource that we can either point people to in our show notes or a link on the, the website? Or is there a time of year that people should be thinking like, oh, this is when they're making new assignments and CARB committees? Well, we actually do it all throughout the year. Certain focus groups spin up randomly throughout the year. So you may be, we may reach out to a pool of licensure candidates and just say, hey, we'd love to hear from you. That also comes through email. So that's, a, I think, a big part of it is also please don't delete the emails that NCARM sends you. Uh, read them. There might be something of interest in them. As far as our major committees, though, there is a committee cycle at NCARM. It starts in the February timeframe when NCARB will do a call for volunteers. We can point people to one of our blogs that talks about like how to volunteer at NCARB. People fill out an application, they identify their areas of interest or their expertise, like Patricia was saying, and then they go into a pool and our task forces or committees then are assembled to really meet that diverse mix of like, okay, we want practitioners from all parts of the country. We want practitioners with different race and ethnicity backgrounds, different gender, like firm size, areas of practice. We really like try to curate committees and task forces the best way possible. That's why we start in February. We start in February, but our committees really don't get seated until the next July. And we take March, April, May, and June to refine the lists and figure out who's going to be the right people for the right task to really move these initiatives forward. And for all of the opportunities, you don't need to be an architect. Even for an architect licensing advisor, you don't need to be an architect. For our committees, there are opportunities for people who are working towards licensure. And for architect licensing advisors, you can join the community anytime. It's a rolling enrollment. Patricia, you read my mind. I was going to ask, can non-licensed individuals participate? Because I do think that there's always been a perception that for those of us on that side, there's a little bit of gatekeeping maybe, but I don't know that that's necessarily the case or if it's a perception. I think it depends on what you're trying to do, but hopefully I think you guys are starting to widen those opportunities for 
non-licensed individuals to feel like they have a way to connect with NCARB and voice their concerns. Absolutely, Janine. And I will say there are a couple of committees where non-licensed individuals cannot serve on them. And those are the item development committees because someday you could see those questions in a test center. And so we're not going to let you write the questions that you then have to go answer some other day. But we do even, I will say, like you had talked about, like opening the gate. NCARB has opened the gate to licensure candidates, even on our examination committee, which is the policy committee. So we have you know licensure candidates that are sitting on the policy committee talking about what should the policies be about the ARE? Now, again, they're not writing items, they're not reviewing items, but they're influencing should there, you know, what should rolling clock policy be like? How, like when we talk about exam fees, they're talking about exam fees, they're talking about retest times, all of those kind of things from the licensure candidate perspective. So we've talked about a lot. Any final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with that we haven't covered about where NCARB's going or anything about the future of practice that you think is really important for our listeners to understand? I think one of the topics we haven't spent a lot of time on, and because we all know it's so important, though, is really looking at how we are going to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in this profession. We know there's a lot of data out there and NCARB sharing part of it, and we've committed to looking at our programs. We've committed to making changes where we can make changes. But I think it's good to continue to reinforce that this is going to be a process that's going to take place over the next few years. Again, there's no magic bullet that is going to solve this problem. And But NCARB is committed to working on it. So I think that's an area where I know we've talked about it. I think we could probably talk about it for another hour very easily. Yes, and I would say in I would like to make a call for everyone to hold us accountable, keeping in mind that this is a collaboration and it's it's an effort that we all need to be together to make it happen. So as much as you hold us accountable, look at your opportunities around you with NCARP or with any other organization at your own firm, school, wherever you are, to support the profession and to support the pipeline. So uh, each of us can do something. And so for our listeners, there was a lot mentioned in this episode. We're going to drop those links in the show notes. So if you want to dive deeper into the reports, you can go visit those reports down in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you to Patricia and Jared. Thanks for spending time with us today to talk about all of these important issues and pull back the curtain on some of the conversations that are going on behind the scenes with NCARB. I think There was a lot in this discussion, and I really appreciate everything that you guys have been able to share today. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.
if you liked this episode and you found that this was an important conversation that others should hear, please share your link to this episode with a friend. And on the show notes for this special bonus episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast, we will share a link over to the show notes over at Practice Disrupted with all the links and references that Evelyn and Janine shared throughout this important episode. And while you're over there, drop a comment over at practiceofarchitecture.com. Talk about what you heard and what you think and say thanks to Evelyn and Janine for sharing this important conversation. And if you haven't already done that, if you're not already a fan, click the subscribe button for Practice Disrupted and listen to all the episodes at Practice Disrupted. Every episode is worth a listen. It is a fantastic show. So go check them out at practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. And just like the Entree Architect podcast, Practice Disrupted is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can learn more about Gable Media and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Thanks for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.